All right, so this is where we were last week uh, with words. And we talked about Soma, and I read something this week that was of great help to me. I was actually reading back through this book. And it's a, it's a way of thinking that's very difficult for us. In other words, you and I, as our Western mindset, since this is how we're programmed, we're taught in school, we think about everything analytically. We want to get the right word. We want to describe things. We want things to be perfect, uh, especially in the medical field, right? Everything has to be a certain way, described a certain way, and those sort of things. These people are not like that. Hebrew and Greek's not like that. He's describing something really from a broad perspective. And you know when I'm preaching, I always tell you guys, let's just back up from this about 30,000 foot because we all like to get down in it. And the further we back up, the better the picture that we see and hopefully we can understand. So Paul's writing and he's using these words from 30,000 feet, so to speak. And so we've got to be careful not to use our hyper descriptive analytical minds to try to understand what he's saying. For instance, when we see a word list like this, you and I immediately go through the process of, okay, putting everything in its proper place in category, right? We've got a category for flesh, soul, spirit, certainly our heart and our mind. And we've got to realize when Paul's using these words, he's just using words to describe the whole man. Now, there is a little bit of distinction that I'll show you tonight, but not nearly as much distinction as how you and I think, okay? And really, we do a good job when we talk about the gospel to our kids because we, and, I, and I've been full circle with this phrase, we tell people that you've got to, or we tell our kids you need to accept Jesus or receive Jesus in your heart. And I think when we say that, we really do understand that what we're meaning is, as a whole little person, we want you to put your faith or trust in Jesus. We don't divide our kids up and go, okay, as long as we get them in your heart, we'll worry about them in your mouth and in your mind later on. I don't think we think that way. I think we're trying to communicate to them as a little person, we want you to see Jesus and love him and receive him. Okay? So we do this sometimes, but we really got to be careful in our study because, you know, Abby just got through with a biology final and a Western mindset you got to know the details, you got to know the specifics, you got to put them in the right categories, and you got to do the right things with them, right? That's not what's going on here, okay? So last week we looked at this word, uh, soma, and we could see very clearly that he's just describing, and we, he uses the word instrument of the human experience. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 7 uses the word earthen vessel, it's a clay pot, that's all this body is. And it's the clay pot which we experience life. Good parts, bad parts, but it's still just a clay pot, okay? Um, and so this is how we summed up. The body is not the man in the middle, for he himself, the man, can exist apart from his body. Therefore, the body is the vehicle pot which may be used to either serve sin or glorify God. So when we sin, the clay pot gets involved, Right? But it's not the clay pot's fault. It's being driven by the sinful desires that's within us. And they manifest themselves physically. And that's why I try to communicate. You know, you start dealing with people with drug addicts and alcohol and they want to go to these uh, celebrate recovery and all this business. You, you, all you're doing is trying to patch a hole in a pot. The pot's not the problem. 
the problem is on the inside, okay? And so that's funny. In, in the Northwest, they always use the, the phrase dry drunk. And what they literally mean is I've swapped drugs for some other addiction, and they would call themselves dry drunks, and it was just something else. So that's not what we're after as Christians. We're after a whole new being born again person, right? All right, so here's other words that we're going to run through tonight. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. In fact, my plan is to ask more questions and, and then do talking. But these are the, the words that Paul uses. All of them have an Old Testament Hebrew word. It's not so much necessary that we know. But you're going to come away with all of these words save one is the whole of man. Okay, one of, them's, one of them is unique. The first word is sarks. It's translated flesh. And so somebody tell me from Romans 1, 3, what's he talking about? What's the flesh? Just humanity. Yeah, just humanity. That's all he's talking about. The manifestation of a human being. It's no... Now, it's got a little twist to it. I'll show you in just a second. But he's just talking about the manifestation of a living being when he uses the word flesh most of the time. Sometimes he doesn't. But here's another case where he's using the word soma and sarks. And you tell me if you see a difference in these words. Paul says about his persecutions that they always carry about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Some arcs. Difference? No. Nicole got it right. No, there's not. Again, Paul's not as analytical as we are. We would like for him to pick a term and make it always mean the same thing, but he doesn't. Okay? He's just trying to show you about the whole man. Now, Sarks is rooted in the, the Old Testament word, basar, which we talked about, and this makes us frail. Almost every time you see the word basar in the Old Testament, it's frail. Sarks, similar. It's built off the same word. In the Old Testament, it says all flesh, humanity is grass. All of its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Grass withers, flower fades, word of our God stands forever. Peter quotes the exact same verse in 1 Peter 1.24, and he uses the word sarks. Because he's speaking Greek, not Hebrew, but you can see. It meant the same thing to him. If we're going to talk about flesh, then I can build it off that word basar because flesh is just frail. We're weak, Right? I told some of them today, somebody dead-legged me at work, and I thought I was going to crumple up into a mass of pain on the floor. I turned around that kid and said, don't you ever hit an old man like that again. <laughs> We're frail. We're weak. Okay, And so Paul would use this, or Peter rather, would use this to point to the, just how frail and transient we are. So here we go. This is a summary statement, and you tell me if, if you see this. Sarks or flesh in its tendency to represent the whole man in several occurrences throughout the New Testament helps us understand men's sinfulness. But it's not the finiteness or his frailty of the flesh that makes man sinful, nor is it the physical flesh that's the moral offender. 
When flesh is used in the context of sinfulness, it is the overwhelming picture of the whole man apart from God image. In other words, in the context of sin, flesh equals the sinfulness of the whole man. Here's an example, Romans 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, for it won't even subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we're like, why wouldn't you use a different word, man? Because you've made flesh, we think, to appear like humanness, and all of a sudden he takes this tack with this word. So what does he teach us here about being a human being? Anybody? Yeah. Not a particular element. He's not trying to say this part of man is bad. He's just trying to say is man, apart from God, is bad. Now, what word does he use in here to demonstrate man apart from God? How is man described apart from God in this passage? I'm just looking for one word. That's descriptive. Adjective. Yes, flesh. The flesh is hostile. Y'all see that? Does that make sense to y'all? Tell me you got frowns. See what he's doing there? Okay. All right, so that's the word flesh. Now, soul is unique. You got to start with your lips like you're going to say a P, but start off with an S, psuche. We don't have any words like that in English. But here's what philosophy does, and this is what Joel Osteen does every Sunday, and this is what any false prophet will do. There is a good side of you, and it's your soul, okay? But you're not going to find a separation of that in the text ever. It's always the same, okay? Uh, the New Testament never glorifies man's soul while at the same time diminishing the physical body. It's all the same. So here we go. It's more frequently used to represent the whole person, just like all these words. Paul says in Romans 2, there'll be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Jew first, also the Greek. Do you see how he's talking about human being? How do we, what phrase do we use using the word soul that references the whole person? What do we say? Huh? No, we have just a saying that we use. From the depths of my soul. Well, yeah. I've heard bless your soul. Bless your soul. Bless your soul. And we're referencing, we're talking about the whole person, right? We're not talking about a particular part of a person. And so Paul does that same thing. And he tells us there is no good side. There'll be, <clears throat> excuse me, there'll be tribulation or distress for every soul. Okay? He's just referencing the entire human being. Now, the soul of man as separate from the body, and that can exist apart from the body, and this is where you begin to see a little separation. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, which is the word soma, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him is able to destroy both soul and soma, soul and body in hell. 
Someone explain. That hasn't talked yet. What do we understand from that passage? Come on, y'all. It's all right to be wrong. This is how you study the Bible. All right, Brad. Let me read it to you. <laughs> Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. What's the distinction? You can phone a friend if you like. Anybody even remember that show? <laughs> you probably got him on speed dial. <laughs> what can we gather from the those two words being said at odds, kind of? There's a distinction between the soul and the body. We understand that this representation of joy, this clay pot, is a non-issue compared with the joy that's really joy. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and so this is the difference. Old Testament uses of soul. In the Old Testament, the soul is not a spiritual entity which exists apart from the body. To the Hebrew man was not a body and a soul. Old Testament, you're not going to find that. The nefesh was simply the individual as a whole. In the New Testament, though, the soul is a spiritual entity which continues to exist after death. Look at this. David, in Psalm 16, watch what he does. And this, by the way, is one of the only Old Testament passages that you're going to find anything about the resurrection. Okay? But watch how David understands it. Therefore, my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He doesn't even draw the separation because they didn't understand the resurrection. That's part of the progressive revelation of God. But by the time we get to the Lord Jesus Christ, He says, don't even worry about the body. Don't consider the body. You need to be concerned with your soul. We don't get that being Americans because we're so concerned about our physical well-being that we don't realize the spiritual well-being is the only thing that's significant. That's why people can joyfully go off to the mission field and lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel because they understand the physical life is totally insignificant to the spiritual life. And so we see that, and this is the only term that I'm going to show you today that you see this distinction between the two. But it makes sense to us. You've never been confused about that, right? No one's ever confused about that. The body that we lay in the ground, you do realize, is not going to be raised like it was. It's weird how the scripture paints it. We got a body now. We're going to get a resurrected body later. And then there's a period of time in between where we're in the presence of the Lord, conscious awareness Yet, there's no description of a body. Can't explain that. Have no idea. 
but you do understand the glorified body that we receive that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 is going to be just like in function the way you do now. We'll walk, we'll talk, we'll laugh, we'll eat. Audrey's mad at me now because their pastor's going through the book of Revelations and she said, you didn't tell me how heaven was going to be and he's laying out all these things walking through Revelation. She said, I had no idea that it would be like exactly the way it is now except perfect. I was like, yeah. Going to have relationships? Going to know people? Going to walk? Going to have a conversation? Going to worship? Going to eat? It's absolutely remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. But that's, we learned that in the New Testament. This body you got now, don't worry about it. Just let it go. Because <laughs> you're going to get a new one. There's nothing going to be wrong with it. All right. Pneuma is the word for spirit. It's communicated as the seed of life. Matthew 27, 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So you see it as a seed of life. It is the seed of emotion. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, Mary at the tomb, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and was troubled. Romans 12, not lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So you see it's the seed of life. It's the seed of emotion. It's also the seed of consciousness or the seed of intelligence or thought. Who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit within the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Not going to hang out a lot there. Here's the difference between the sarks and the pneuma. From a basic point of view, flesh and spirit are opposed. In Greek thought, they represent the physical body was contaminated and the pure was the spirit, the bond, and the free. Paul's contrast between man seeking to live the godless lives, uh, to seek to live godless lives was flesh, and a child of God seeking to fellowship with him was spiritual. The contrast was not physical spiritual, but between sinful and holy. The flesh usually stands for the weakness and the frailty of man which enters in, or entertains evil and so separates us from God and leads to death. Spiritual or the spirit usually stands for the divine life which issues from God and manifests its power within man. It's a little more difficult. But it's going to be super helpful when you read through the book of Romans. When he uses the term flesh in the context of sin, that's the part where we're separated from God. When he uses the word spirit in the context of sin or in God, that's the part that we run toward God and we pursue holiness. And I'm going to ask you, which part do you always have with you? Sarks or Nima? Huh? No, always. The whole of your life, which part have you had? The flesh. Which part do you have once you're born again? The spirit. Y'all see that? I can't find a place in the text where anybody that's not born again has this spiritual side to them. Brad brought the text up last week. He said, what about this verse right after we got done or it was two weeks ago? He's already thinking ahead. I'm like, that's exactly right. You don't see that terminology until somebody's born again. Meaning, before you're born again, there's nothing Godward that's going on in your life. We call people good. It's just not possible. You can't say somebody's a good person. It's just not possible. There's nothing within them that's Godward until they're born again. 
They may do some good things, right? But we just can't say that. It's just not possible, at least not from the text. You either operate according to the flesh or the spirit. In all of your interactions, you either operate according to the flesh which you have or you operate according to your spirit. When you get mad at work, flesh, spirit, which one's it going to be? When you get into it with your kids or your spouse, you're going to operate with the flesh, you're going to operate with the spirit. They're both there if you're born again. And you're morally culpable to humble yourself and operate according to the spirit. There's a lot we could talk about in the context of relationships with that, but it's, it's there if you've been born again. Uh, let me see. I'm going backwards. We don't want to do that. A couple more words. <laughs> All right. No, 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 please. Right, so when we're born, it's flesh, right? Yep. Physically and spiritually. Okay. Yeah. And then when we're born again or when we believe. Right. You're saying that's when we obtain spirit? Is that what you're saying? So what, when the physical flesh dies? Well, you got to, yeah, but we're talking about metaphysical things, not real things, right? I understand that. So that's the power of God manifested in your life. Right. And it's communicated or described in the Bible of the Spirit. So what's the transition from when our physical flesh dies, right? And we know that you just described what it would be like in heaven then. Right. So from that period to judgment. Yeah. But what after judgment? Or are we going to get there later? You're going to get a 100%, the way I understand it, 100% Holy Spirit animated body that's glorified. Yeah, I know. That is the source of life, is the Spirit. Right? Is it going to be, would it be too much, is it going to be like Adam before the fall, or is it going to be better than that? Or? See, there's a lot of discussion about that. I would say better, because we have a unique relationship now in Christ that Adam didn't necessarily enjoy. Somehow there's this mystical union, and I'll talk about it a lot going through Romans. It's always in Christ, I in Christ, in Christ. And I can't see where Adam was in Christ. He was certainly with God. But I think the spiritual union we'll enjoy will be better than Adam, or really I don't even have the range of words to describe it. But at the same time, like Audrey was bringing up, we've got to talk about some passages There'll be forms of government. There'll be places to live in the kingdom of heaven. And I'm like, what? She was pulling out some passages. I'm like, okay. I've never walked through revelations like that. But I think the more you get into that, the more you realize heaven is not a mystical, magical place. And somehow that's conceived in our minds that that's the way it is. It's going to be very real. It's just going to be without sin. And I can't imagine creation itself without sin. Because we go to, you know, Paige and I like St. John's, and we go to St. John's, and I'm like, are you telling me this is fallen? Because it looks fine to me, right? But it's still been affected by the fall. And I'm just like, well, I'm going to come back here because I want to see this without fallen. But everything will be without death, without sin, you have glorified bodies. All right, the heart 
usually represents the inner being. New Testament, Old Testament is very similar. First Peter says, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Uh, here we go. And this is in Romans. Sin ruins man's heart, his innermost being. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? The New Testament echoes the very same thought. Just as the heart is the seat of faithlessness before Jesus, the heart is also the seat of faith after Jesus. So Paul says this in Romans 10. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a, the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Now hopefully you have a different perspective of heart from that passage. What would you say about heart from that? After all this we've gone through, and you tell your kids you've got to believe in your heart, right? That God raised them from the dead and you will be saved. What do you know that you're communicating to them? It's everything. It's the whole person, right? It's absolutely the entirety of every molecule in their little body. Trust in Jesus. And we communicate to them on the basis of the heart. Believe it in your heart. All right. Here's something interesting that we'll get into in Romans. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken to her by Paul. 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, Light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What does that teach us about salvation? What do you think, Jonathan? What is that demonstrating for us? Who's responsible? Yeah. Who's the one that opens the heart? The Lord. Who's the one that shines the light of the glory of Christ in our hearts? It's Him. Salvation is all of Him. And I always say this when I run across passages like this, and I did when we walked through Acts 16. If this be true, and obviously it is, the most effective thing that we could do in evangelism is to pray. I mean, certainly we have to open our mouth and speak the truth of the gospel, but the most powerful thing that you can do is pray because it's the Lord that opens the heart. And hopefully, and I know you guys do, we do on Wednesdays, and I remember Paige and I, Doing this, the kids, we'd put them to bed. We'd wait till they fall asleep. We'd go back in their room. We'd get at the foot of their bed, in the floor, on our knees, elbows up, and begin to ask God to open their heart to the truth of the gospel. Every night, as far as I can remember, God be merciful and save them. Give us wisdom to teach them and guide them and show them what Christ is like. And we did it all the time. Because we understood what grace meant, okay?
All right, last word, the mind. Most basically, the mind refers, again, to the inner man, just like the heart, in relationship, though, with thought. Because of this emphasis, the mind is pictured either as the center of sin or the target of salvation. Romans 1, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can understand what God's will is, what is good and acceptable. Ephesians 4, I say this, I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility or the ignorance or stupidity, you can translate it, of the mind. Ephesians 4, you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The mind has to be claimed by Christ. If it is not, it is, well, we see what happens to the mind today. You know, we've got good things to pray about tonight with hopefully Roe versus Wade being overturned. It's just amazing to watch the news right now and see how people are angry, how they're demanding the rights over their own body. I'm like, obviously, I know you don't understand the gospel, but that is like almost the height of ignorance for me because you do not understand that you were created in the image of God. You're not your own. So don't tell me that you have a right over your body. I don't have a right over my body, nor do you. It's just an instrument that can be used to dishonor God or it's an instrument that should be used to glorify God. You don't have rights and privileges over that. 